Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 176 with my guest Bernadette. This episode is sponsored by PillPack, the online pharmacy that delivers convenient, pre-sorted meds right to your front door. No more hassles at the local pharmacy. And PillPack no longer charges any monthly fees, so it costs exactly the same as your retail pharmacy, but it's a thousand times more convenient. To check it out and to support this podcast, go uh, to PillPack.com slash happy hour. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor, doctor's office? <laughs> English all of a sudden. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. Uh, it's, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check out the forum, uh, fill out a survey, see how other people filled out surveys, buy a t-shirt. Maybe you get yourself a nice t-shirt. Maybe you get yourself a coffee mug. Maybe you get a t-shirt, you put it on, and you sip from the Mental Illness Happy Hour coffee mug, and you call it a day. That sounds like a full day to me. I don't know why you would need to do anything more than that. You've supported the show. You've dressed fancy. You've caffeinated. And that's the end of this bit. Um... What did I want to say? I don't know. Let's get to uh, let's get to the action, huh? Oh, where are my notes? I want to give a shout out to a um, listener named uh, Matt McVarish. He is a uh, Scottish boy. <laughs> Scottish boy. He's a wee lad, and he is doing a ten thousand mile walk uh, around Europe to bring awareness to childhood sexual abuse. And um, I'm told that he listens to the podcast while he's got his uh, his earbuds in, slogging through the rain in the middle of Belgium. So, Matthew, and hopefully we're going to uh, have Matt as a guest when he, uh, when he brings his worn-out feet 
to uh, Los Angeles in the, in the spring. So, um, faster, Matt, faster. I want to thank his brother, too, for uh, hooking us up. That sounded dirty. I uh, also want to bring some awareness to a um, a sponsor of uh, this episode. They're sponsoring this episode, and it's uh, California's uh, mental health movement, and it's called Each Mind Matters. I was a part of a documentary they did on California PBS stations, and I um, was thrilled to go MC uh, an event that they had on May 13th on the lawn of the Capitol building in, in Sacramento, and... Um, they have a great website. It's called eachmindmatters.org, and you can go there and um, you can sign up. You can become a part of, uh, I don't know, take your pledge to do what you can to help combat the stigma around mental illness. Uh, you can sign up for the newsletter. Um, they'll send you a green ribbon, help bring more awareness to uh, what's going on. You know, it's you th- sometimes you think all oh, those ribbons don't do anything, but let's say you're standing in line for something, you got your green ribbon on, and somebody asks you, hey, what's that for? You can say, uh, I'm fucking bananas. What's it to you? And you shove them out of line. And then you say, I'm sorry. I didn't take my meds today. You got a minute? And then you fill them in. Uh, but in all seriousness, it's a great movement, and California's on the, the leading edge of... Um, so many things, and uh, mental health is, is one of them. So, again, uh, please support eachmindmatters.org and uh, get those green ribbons. Let's get, let's get some conversation started and reduce the shame around this, uh, this issue. Let's get the shame back where it belongs, on me. Uh, I, want to, I read this really touching um, email. I think it was the last episode or one before, and it was from Judy, and she... she wrote so profoundly about um, her mother and uh, her mother's Alzheimer's. But one of the things that she didn't share is that her mother was a pretty abusive person when she was a child. And I was going through the forum the other day, and I saw that Judy had posted this, and I I, I thought this would just be a nice addendum to read um, on her relationship with her mom. And she writes, My mother was profoundly depressed and angry throughout my life. It was about her needs only. I remember trying to be involved in a city choir. I auditioned and actually got in. They were picky. But then I, fa- uh, I was faced with having to find my own way to the rehearsals and even trying to make my own costume because my mother refused to have anything to do with it. I remember making and going to my own dental appointments uh, on my bike. Those are a couple of examples of how we were left to our own devices. But the amazing thing, when she got Alzheimer's, it erased every bit of that selfish, angry, and unloving person. What I got was this sweet lady who would say, I love you and hug me. I came in one day to visit her and kissed her. Uh, she kept pursing her lips for more kisses, and I said, how many kisses would you like? A thousand was her answer. A few months before she died, I was kissing her goodbye. Her one working arm came up and took my glasses off my face, and she was staring at me. I asked her what she was looking at, and she said, beauty. Alzheimer's is nasty. It's brutal. But I would never have had over three years of being able to feel unconditional love, the kind of love where you would die for someone else, unless it happened to her unless it had happened to her. Um, it's beautiful. And I got to say, when I read that, I it really moved me too because I have a fantasy 
um, of being able to connect with my mom before she um, dies. And sometimes I feel like that would be the only way that I would be able to be in the same room with her, which would be if, if her, you know, demons or personality or whatever you want to, her sickness left her. Um, anyway, this is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Mrs. Blah. I like her right away. She describes her depression. My depression feels like I'm standing on a train platform watching everyone getting on and I don't know when or where to go or even how to get on the fucking train. Oh my God, do I love that one. I love when you guys just sum it up so perfectly and it makes me feel less alone. This is the uh, same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Star Avenue and about his hypomania. It's like fucking an unattainable it's like fucking an unobtainable sex partner while binge eating ice cream and doing your drug of choice and still not being satisfied. Wow, that is that is an image. You're going to need some wet towels after after that one. Um, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Celebration of Dysfunction about her anxiety. A tiny voice that whispers, you are not real just as I'm about to fall asleep. About her OCD. I can fall asleep if I can make the numbers on the clock add up to nine. About her shopping addiction. Everything will make sense once I have this pair of shoes. And about her fibromyalgia. If my outside looked like my insides feel, no one would think I'm, quote, faking it. Oh, I want to send a, a hug out to anybody who's struggling with chronic pain. Um, we do ha- have um, some some guests uh, upcoming uh, where that that issue is going to be addressed. I know some of you have uh, reached out with emails and asked for it to to be covered. Um, sa- this is the same survey filled out by a uh, by a fella. Uh, calls himself Lamont Cranston. Hello, Lamont. He's active in the forum and uh, I believe has posted some some great fears and and loves. And about his anxiety, he writes, um, "It feels like." Uh, As hard as I keep treading water, I'm having a hard time keeping my head above it and not getting any closer to the shore. And the snapshot from his life, and I wanted to read this because I feel like there are probably, I feel like probably a quarter of the country could relate to to what he writes. He writes, I'm in a new job. Things were great for the first month. Then I was piled on with a lot of work and with no clue on what to do. I had very minimal training and I sat in my cubicle almost numb for a half hour today, scared at messing up my work and having the fear of being let go, uh, even though it's a temporary job. As a man over 40 who hasn't had a job with benefits in nearly three years, I feel that I'm stuck in a dead end opportunity and I hate myself for it. I've broken down at my desk. Luckily, no one has seen me. And there have been many times I've thought of getting up and walking out. My plan would be to just leave and drive somewhere, not returning home for a couple of days. I can't do that because I have responsibilities at home and my pay helps support my wife and me. I'm afraid that I made another bad choice and nothing will get better. I feel ashamed for being weak in this situation and for not being the man that I want to be, especially for my wife. And you know, first of all, I want to send you some love, Lamont, but I also want to say you are a fucking man. What you are doing is as manly as man men can get. You are sitting through your fear. You're 
expressing your emotions. You're you're opening up about it and and you're not running. That you know, that's success to me. That is success to me, emotional success. Um it I just I know there's so many people that feel like you do and um I, I hope they know that uh we're we're sending them a high five. And then this last one I want to read, same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Rob Stoner. Love him. Uh, and he writes um, about his anxiety. I haven't said hi, and I know you already hate me and want to fuck my best friend. Uh, about his love addiction. In a movie, I'd get you. In real life, you're a bitch for giving up on me based on my first impression. Uh, and any ideas to make the podcast better? Try to be harder on yourself. I get the feeling you have been way too easy on yourself over the last few dozen episodes. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's, that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I I'm here with uh, a listener, and she's going to call herself Bernadette so that she feels more free to open up uh, about her life and those around her. Um, you're very familiar with the show. You said you've listened to all the episodes. Yes. Which I'm incredibly flattered by. Mm-hmm. Um, you sent me an email, and I asked, oh, you just offered what the broad strokes were right. of of your Kind your, of summarize your life it. and your extended family. Share that with the with the listener, and then we'll pick some and go into detail about them. Okay, so I grew up in a really small town in Denver. It's a suburb of Denver, and it's only about seven square miles. And um, when my family, when my grandparents moved to that neighborhood, they had five children, and my family was really well known in that city. And there was um, three brothers, which were my uncles, and then my mother and my aunt. And the three brothers and my grandpa were kind of notorious within that city. Um, People knew that if, you know, you rubbed them the wrong way, that there were going to be consequences. I mean... They were violent. To the extreme, yeah. Um, And my grandpa was abused as a child, and that all rolled downhill to the family. And so... Because of the abuse, um, there was a lot of drug use, alcohol, um, fights, um, and that's the kind of environment that An I grew up in. An extended episode of Cops. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> except, Deep cuts, except Cops. Except for not Deep. like the trashy part. My family was pretty like, you know, they were uh, middle class. Okay. Um, and then about you personally, you... Um, 
said that you are an alcoholic and right. you have uh, borderline personality disorder. Yeah, and major pr- depression as well. Okay. And so I, you know, I take a few meds. I'm on Prozac and uh, Wellbutrin. I just got off Effexor and that was very, very difficult. The brain zaps, did you oh, enjoy yeah. them? Yeah, that's why she had me on Prozac. She said it helps and I think it did, but it took me about three months to is, come off. Is that your GP or your psychiatrist? Um, it's She's actually a psychiatric nurse. Mm-hmm. And then I do talk therapy as well every week. And then I do um, outpatient rehab every week as well. Good. How long have you been sober? Are you sober? I'm not sober. Okay. I am not sober. Um, Is it outpatient rehab for the alcoholism? Exactly. Okay. Um, So you're struggling with that. I am. It's Uh, something I've been, I've been drinking since I was 13 and I am now 35. And so it's been such a huge part of my life, excuse me, that I, it's hard to let it go. Give me a snapshot of what your drinking looks like um, on a night or a day when you're... Okay. Yeah, um, so basically my alcohol of choice is vodka. I go for the hard stuff. Um, I usually drink the little shooters, and I'll drink anywhere from like five, which is quite a bit, um, to you know, six, seven, eight. It just depends on the day. And around what time of day would um, you typically start drinking? I for for years and years I never drank until, you know, the afternoon, but now, um I mean sometimes it gets a little earlier. Um and I'm very sneaky with it because of my boyfriend. So it it makes it's basically an ultimatum with him, but we can get into that later. Yeah, well, he's going to hear this, so yeah, he will. Yeah. Oh, I also wanted to mention for the alcohol, my um, psychiatrist she has me on ga- something called gabapentin, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to help with the cravings, and it actually worked really well at first, and now I feel like I'm just becoming immune. <laughs> yeah, you know, as a as a recovering alcoholic, I'm I'm really um, skeptical of anything that's supposed to reduce any pill you can take that's supposed to reduce your craving because, as I understand alcoholism, is that it's centered in the brain. Right. And is, yes, there can be a physical craving too, but it's also a mental and spiritual malady. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I feel like... Selfishness and fear and... You know. Exactly. I mean, like, I think it's very, very psychological, the addiction for me. Yeah. So... Uh, and the borderline personality disorder, um, was that, are you self-diagnosed? Is that no. Snow? Okay. Uh, I can't imagine many people would self-diagnose themselves as that. No, but, but when you read about it, you kind of do start identifying. You're like, oh yes, that's me. That's me to T, you know? So, um, my therapist, um, she's like, I, I really think that you fit into this. Mm-hmm. And now it's being called emotional dysregulation disorder, yeah. but I think most people know of it as borderline personality disorder. Yeah, I disorder. can't remember all of that. So give give the listener. Uh, we've talked about it before on this program, and I'm and I'm glad that you contacted me because it's a very very misunderstood um, disorder, and my heart goes out to people that live with it or or, or at least have the qualities um, mm-hmm. of it talk about what it what it's like to have that um 
Well, I don't understand everything about it either, but for me, the thing that I identify with the most is going from one extreme to the other. And there's actually a book out there called I Love You, or he it's, a, it's um, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like you go from that one extreme to the other really quick. Um, and it's very hard to control. I, I can't really pin down my emotions. They're all over the place and... Um, and it's fair to say there, when they occur, they're extremely intense. Definitely. And yeah. I, I just can't even calm myself down. And deep inside there, um, from what I understand, is a, a deep fear of abandonment, of being sure. left sure, behind definitely. or rejected. Oh, yeah. And I mean, growing up, I mean, my environmental issues contributed to that as well. I mean, my mom wasn't around a whole lot. And when she was, I mean, she's definitely a narcissist. So when she was around, it's like she wasn't present. Hmm. How would, how, in what ways was she narcissistic? Um, well, it, it certainly was like, if I would talk to her, I could tell she, she wouldn't look at me for one thing. Um, so there's what? no, no, there was no eye contact with her. She would, would she look at other, uh, how many she, siblings did you have? Um, I have a younger brother that's 10 years younger than me, so I didn't really grow up with him initially. But what I mean was, um, you would speak to her and she'd kind of be off like looking, you know, at the wall or whatever, but you could tell she wasn't seeing the room. She was seeing whatever was playing inside of her mind. I see. So she was really stuck in her head. Oh yeah. And she still is. And, And it's gotten to the extreme of like the hypochondria right now for her. So it's very difficult to have a conversation with her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, that sounds really tough. Yes. B- both for you and for for her. Because the person, that's her reality. That's her normal. And she can't yes. understand that, that that's not ideally how a human being re- relates to other people. My dad was like that. Very yeah. much like that. He just, you never, you know, maybe... One percent of the time you felt like you had his full attention and the rest of the time you could see him just waiting for the conversation to end so he could back go back to reading or watching TV Mm -hmm. or, you know, doing whatever, whatever it was that was solitary. Was your mom a solitary person or was she social? She's very solitary. Um, I think that the reason she is the way she is is... my aunt and her never got into the drugs and alcohol like my my uncles did. So I think for them, their kind of quote-unquote drug was their mental escape. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to go somewhere when my grandpa was being very abusive so that they could escape that reality. I mean, I can't really blame them, but I mean, it, it just comes down to the next generation. Uh, your grandfather's abuse... Uh Emotional, physical, sexual? Um, all three. So it, does, it, of course, depended on the family member. And so, was he that way to all of his children? Um, the boys, he was physically and emotionally abusive. Um, the girls, he was, I would say, more emotionally abusive and sexual abusive. I don't know of any physical abuse when they were younger, but I know that I've seen him slap my aunt before, and I had to call the cops when I was in my 20s. So, yeah, it was just all over the spectrum. 
and what what kind of status was it that that your grandfather held in that in that community um he was a truck driver and so and he was also really big into running and pool so he like i remember there being trophies all around the house for billiards and for um running and and things like that and running then, like marathons yeah exactly i mean he actually that is such a bizarre combination like the last people i would think of crossing a, a marathon finish line with their hands in the air is an abusive trucker right right wow a, an abusive pool playing trucker i know he i i don't see him fitting into any sort of social mold but how old is he now he is about 83, and he's in a nursing home in the Alzheimer's unit. Okay. What, what, is, what does that bring up for you? I'm actually, I'm kind of glad for him that he cannot remember the terrible things that he did to everyone. Um, I, I just, for him, I, would, I like knowing that he has that peace before he dies. Um. And so, I, I wish that he would die um, just so that he doesn't have to be in that situation anymore. I, I, I have that compassion for him. That's incredibly compassionate. Well, and I also work in a nursing home environment myself. And mm. so I see the hospice and, and that kind of thing. So I, there's a part of him that you loved. Oh, definitely. He, he and my grandma raised me. Um Obviously not in an appropriate way, but um, he was the only father that I really had. And he was never physically or sexually abusive toward me. It was like the grandchildren he could start over with. However, because I lived in the household, the emotional abuse towards my grandma or, you know, his kids, the fighting between them, the dynamics were just very, very um, abusive, and it had a, a deep impact on me. Yeah, that'll fuck you up, even if it's not directed <laughs> at you. Exactly. I, I mean, I just remember, and I've actually talked to my uncle um, about this, that when he would start the the screaming, which, I mean, it could go on for hours, he actually had he had bipolar, which we referred to as manic depression back then, and he actually had shock treatments. But it was as if... You couldn't do anything to stop it. And so this rage as a child, a young child, this rage just builds and builds inside of you and you want to scream at him. And it's like your love for that person automatically switches to hate um, because they're hurting someone else that you love, which was my grandma. And she was like a mother to me. And would your grandfather get uh, high or drunk? He drank for a little while, but no. I mean, he was really pretty much sober, which is scary because, I mean, alcoholics, at least we can fall back on that artificial excuse. Like, yeah. you know, I was drunk. I'm sorry I went off on you, but he was constantly like that, just sober. Rageaholic, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where was your uh, biological dad? He was actually literally about two minutes away from the house that I grew up with or grew up in. And he, he was there pretty much his whole life. So my father was a few blocks away from me. I had only seen him in person. I mean, beyond when I was born. And I think they, my mom and dad divorced when I was one beyond that. I, I seen him, I made eye contact with him once in my life. What is, what does that feel like? Well, I'll tell you growing up, um, Having 
my grandfather and and such a big family around me I'm sure that it had a subconscious like impact but I didn't notice it until I became a teenager um I started really getting into drugs and alcohol when I was about 15 and my mom got sick of the sneaking out and and the drinking so one day she actually packed up my stuff and said you're gonna go live with your dad and my dad lived with his mother um and so I hadn't seen my grandma which would be my paternal grandma for probably probably since I was about six years old and I'm 15 at this time and and my mom basically drives me over there and drops me off on the curb and so I go up to my grandma's house and she answers and there's this little tiny toddler about three years old, blonde hair, blue eyes, standing next to her. And I had to tell her who I was because, of course, she hadn't seen me in so many years, almost 10 years. Um, and I said, I explained to her what happened. I said, my mom wants me to live with my dad now. Oh, my God. And she told me, I'm very sorry, but your dad died a week ago. You missed him by a week. She said he died in a car accident on Riverdale Road, which is a, like a famous road for people to um, drive off of and, and die because it's so curvy. Um, and so I missed him by a week. And so that was tremendously traumatic for me. And you were 15 at this point? Right. And I wasn't sure I would have anywhere to go because my mom told my grandparents that, you know, not to let me live there. But my grandma was like, there's no way. Like, you could totally come live here. But when my mom found out that he had died, of course, she felt terrible. And, you know, I went back to, to live with her. But I was very angry, and I still am. And was your mom living with your grandparents at that point? No. Okay. Um, at that point, she was living in a townhouse within the same city. And I... I'm still angry to this day that my grandmother didn't contact us and, and tell us about it so that we could go to the service. Um, I realize it was very instantaneous and not planned, but um, it still hurts to this day that I couldn't go to his funeral. Well, you know, the thing that strikes me is even more sad than that is that you were forced to go stand on that porch and knock on that door and that no call had been made ahead of time that it was you were just treated like a thing that was dropped off Mm -hmm. like like a garbage can put on the curb or like an old tv and i found out that little girl standing there was my sister my half sister i had a half sister (laughs) and i didn't know and so she was kind of what i gained um, out of that situation, and her and I are very close today. Um, so she didn't really know her dad either. She was no, three by the I time mean, he died. No, he. I mean, he was there, but yeah, she can't remember. And and she was actually a crack baby. Her mother was on crack when she was born, and she went through withdrawals. And my paternal grandmother took care of her. Does she struggle with? Because uh, I've heard this about children who are um, in the womb of a person who's using or drinking a lot, does she struggle with impulse control? I don't believe so. I I know a few years ago she had a lot of problems with rage, so she Mm -hmm. would really lash out, and, and that was impulsive in itself, but 
I have to tell you, she is one of the most beautiful, physically beautiful, well-rounded, intelligent people that I've ever met. Loyal. I mean, I look at her and she is the epitome of success in my eyes. And I'm so proud of her. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. She overcame a lot. And, and living with my paternal grandmother was not easy. She was very manipulative and things, too. Uh there's actually a story behind that. Um, my dad, he grew up in a terrible childhood as well. Um, he was doing a lot of drugs and he drank a lot too, also to escape. Um, when he was 15, he called his um, biological father. My grandma had remarried, so he had a stepdad. And he called his biological father and he said, you know, my stepdad's being really abusive, physically abusive. He's hitting us and so on and so forth. Well, apparently my grandfather came over with a gun and he shot he shot the stepdad and he shot himself right in front of my dad and my dad's brother and my grandma. So that was something that my dad had to live with growing up. And he really did turn into an alcoholic and, and use drugs. Uh, yeah. Wow. And that my, this mouth, is, my mouth is open. This is all within this small city. I mean, this city is literally, it has no room to expand. And it's almost like there was this just dark cloud over that city. A lot of the kids in that city, um, you know, everybody knew each other and they all went to school together. And so they all started kind of doing drugs together and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And getting in with like big drug dealers outside of the city and, I remember one time some hitman walked through our house looking for my uncle. And just because the door was unlocked, he just walked in and he he went through the house looking for him and he left. But um, we had a lot of things, terrible things going on in that house. And that's one reason I don't ever like to go there. My grandma still lives there to this day. And it's hard for me to visit it because there's so much negative energy there. Um, my grandpa actually shot his son in that house, and he did survive. And that your uncle survived. Yes. Yeah. He is the youngest uncle of the three, and he is actually sitting in prison now for life. Um, his attorney did get a, him off of death row, but um, yeah, he's never going to get out. And and this is basically for murder. I don't know how many he has revealed murders to me um, through letters that were not public and that, you know, which he wasn't on trial for, for Mm -hmm. it. Um, I think there's murders he's committed that people don't know that it was him bodies. They haven't found. Um, So he's a serial killer. He's a serial killer. He's infamous in, in Colorado. One of the most infamous Colorado serial killers. And the thing about my uncle was... Do you want to say who he is? Yeah. um, His name is Ron White. And he was very handsome. I mean, like a movie star. There's actually a um, Lieutenant Joe Kinda Homicide Hunter episode on, I believe it's um, ID Discovery. Hmm. And it's based on him. And even the actor that they got to play him couldn't even touch his looks. I mean, he was amazing. And so he had all the ladies. He could pretty much get away with whatever he wanted. He had he was big. He had muscles. Um, people knew not to mess with him. Um, yeah. 
I know I left you speechless. <laughs> the flow chart of your family, <laughs> family, and its tragedies and dramas is, uh, mm-hmm. and that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> But those are the the major highlights. Well, now I'm going to have to go watch that episode. Yeah, and do, see. do. And it's on what? Um, it's on ID Discovery. It's called Lieutenant Joe Kenda Homicide Hunter, and it's a series. And he, yeah, they had that series on about my uncle. Like apparently, um, Joe Kenda is a detective from Colorado Springs, I believe. And so he was, they were looking for my uncle for a while, you know, and the FBI was looking for him. They didn't know who was doing some of the things that were going on. Why? Your And your uncle has not confessed to some of these? Um, I don't know. Other murders? I'm not sure if he's um, officially, you know, through, you know, attorneys or whatnot. I don't know who he's confessed to. Um, Are you okay with me leaving it in that he's oh, yeah. confessed to you in I these mean, letters? Because... Obviously, Somebody may contact you and say, you know, he's let not, us look at those letters. He's not getting out. I mean, there's nothing. He's in for life. He's right. he's going to die there. Yeah. So. Um, what what was his. Um, and I'm sorry, we're, we're talking so much not about you, but about the oh, stuff around you. But the, the stuff around me is what makes me who I am. Good and bad. What was his. preferred target as a serial killer and what was his his um method um well i do believe a lot of it had to do with his anger that he had inside but um a lot of it was drug related i believe too um whether it be when he would be on drugs he would be on drugs but it it could also be about money i know some of it was about money some of it was about drugs like maybe the dealing of drugs um the one that's featured on the episode is about a guy that he met at a bar um i don't i believe what he told me i mean of course some of the things in the episode the details are not what he says are the details and he has no reason to lie to me because like I said, he's, he's in there for life, but um, unless he's a pathological liar, in which case they, <laughs> right. they get off on but getting there, away with lying. There is a lot of stories through my family that I've correlated with the people that he said were involved and they've corroborated that. Yes, it's happened, you know, that way. Um, but anyway, on the episode, it was about some guy he met at a bar, and apparently the guy was too drunk to drive home, and I guess they were going to go to his apartment and do drugs. Um, in the episode, my uncle was alone, but he told me his girlfriend was with him, and um, they went back to the guy's place, and from what my uncle says, um, the guy came like came on to him. And so I guess he just flew into rage and grabbed the butcher knife out of the kitchen block. And um, wait, let me back up. He did say the guy initially grabbed the knife. I guess he was the one that got mad and and -hmm. held it to his throat. And then he says he grabbed it and he said he stabbed him. And I think on the show, it was pretty brutal um, with a blood splatter and and that kind of thing. Um, He did leave DNA behind because usually when you're you're stabbing someone, you slip up a little bit and you mm. cut yourself, and that's what happened. Yeah, you know they say now that DNA evidence is so good that it's impossible to enter 
and leave a room without leaving some type of uh, evidence, no matter no matter how small. It reminds me of that movie Gattaca. Have you seen that? I haven't. Yeah, it's like he leaves one little hair behind, and yet they know all about him. Yeah. Um. So let's let's talk about your experience. Um. God, I don't even know where to begin. To where? What would you like to talk about with your life and your struggles? Well, I mean, I can just go through the, the the high points or the low points, I guess, if you will, and you just stop me if you want more detail. Um, so I grew up within my family. It, I had extended, like, I mean, I'm, a, I'm from an Irish Catholic family, so I have, you know, third, fourth, fifth cousins. I don't even know who these people are. And so there was always family around, but it was always in a negative way. People were always fighting, you know, fist fights. There was always, like people coming into the house that I didn't know, like strange men that were friends with my uncles. Um, I was scared of my oldest uncle. He really freaked me out because he was so erratic. Did any of the uncles live in the house that you lived in? At times. At times they did. For financial reasons or? Probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so I was kind of in a household that was very, very chaotic on a daily basis. um, My grandpa would scream at my grandma for at least an hour. And she was very um, enabling. She didn't ever fight back. She never stopped him. And so I would just sit and and build with anger. And a lot of times what I would do, I was a loner um, on the days that my cousins weren't around, which it seemed like they only came around like on special occasions and things like that, Christmas and whatnot. But I would go outside and that was my sanctuary. I would go outside and play on my jungle gym or my, my grandpa had a shed and I would go in there and play with my dog. And my bedroom was kind of a sanctuary. I'd play with my dolls. And so when I think of my safe place, if in therapy, it's usually my bedroom where I could just kind of get away. And, um, so I grew up there for a long time. Um, when I was about I think I was seven or eight. My mom remarried my stepdad. And that started a whole nother pile of shit. It was, he was very emotionally and physically abusive to her. Um, She got pregnant with my brother and he got a job in California in um, Orange County. And my mom left me with my grandparents. She took my baby brother and she moved out there with her husband and left me for probably a good month or two I think it was to finish school for the the year but that had a huge impact on me because I felt really abandoned at that point and I felt like I was left in this crazy place um did you say anything to her when you found out she was you leaving can't. And- I mean it's so hard to articulate your mom tells you you're gonna do something you do it you know what what would you have liked to have said if you could have found the words as that kid and how old were you um, at that point, I was about 10. Yeah. Um, and then eventually she did. I, I don't know what I would say to her, Paul. I have no idea. I would say, why the hell are you leaving me? You're leaving me with my brother and this guy, you know. But we, I eventually went out there and um, we lived there a couple years. And then we moved to Vista, San Diego. Can we just back up for a second? Okay. Can you describe the emotions that you remember feeling? Was it more anger or sadness or some other emotion or was it I was very hurt um I 
I always had my mother physically, if not mentally there. She was always at least there physically. And so I was very hurt. I was jealous of my brother because he was a baby. Of course, he was getting a lot of attention. And he was the biological child of the... The step, stepdad. Stepdad. Exactly. And that's so common. You see that yeah. all the time, that the, the the favoritism and generally the female, the, the mom of the blended family doesn't stick up for her biological children. They kind of, because she's afraid of being left behind. And I'm sure there are instances where the man kowtows to the, to the woman and mm-hmm. kind of lets his his kids get you know second class citizen treatment but it it i hear time and time again about the woman um being the one that allows her kids to be mhm yeah i mean i never felt close to him whatsoever and i didn't know it at the time but he was actually doing cocaine um but there he, so I moved out there, and then my stepbrother, which was his son, he also moved there. And I'd never met this person, and he was a year younger than me. And we got very close. Um, my brother, I mean, he was just a baby, so it was kind of hard to be close with him. Um, but one day, the the reason we moved back to Colorado was um, one day my, my stepdad just snapped on my mom, and he started beating her with the phone on the head and I thought he was going to kill her and my stepbrother was just reduced to I mean he couldn't do anything there was no he didn't know what to do he was crying and of course my other brother was a baby and so I went next door to the neighbors and I said please call 911 and I went outside to wait for the police and my stepfather walked down the sidewalk and he looked me straight in the eye and he was like you're a bitch because I guess because I called the police, he didn't want me to do that. So my grandpa came out with a trailer and hauled us back to Colorado, and I've been here ever since. Let's uh, let's pause and uh, give some sponsor love. Um, our sponsor today is Pill Pack, and uh, God bless them. They've been sponsoring a bunch of our episodes, and we really, really appreciate it. And I think they're such a great fit for this show, too, because they have a great product. It's an online pharmacy, and they deliver meds uh, pre-sorted, uh, right to your door. It's uh, it, everything is so well thought out um, by PillPack. I just love it, uh, and they no longer have monthly fees, so it doesn't cost you a penny more than it would to get meds from your uh, retail pharmacy. And you don't have to wait in line anymore. You don't have to show up and stand in line, bef- you know, behind ten people, only to find out that uh, they could only fill half your prescription. And uh, the other thing I like is the the way that um, when they ship you your meds in this roll. Um, it's it's broken down by day and, if necessary, by time of day. So there's no questioning, did I forget to take my meds today? You know, just by, by looking at it. Um, and they have great customer service. They know that your uh, your meds are important to you. And uh, making sure that your your order gets fulfilled exactly as it should is, is important to them. And it's super easy to sign up. Um, they make the switch over from your old pharmacy to them. You basically just have to give them some basic information. So go check out the website. It's pillpack.com slash happy hour. That way they'll know that you're a listener of ours and uh, they'll hopefully keep advertising on our show. So even if you're just going to go check out the website, that helps to let them know that you guys are supportive of the podcast. Again, pillpack.com slash happy hour. 
want to also give some love to Care.com and uh, thank them for uh, becoming a sponsor of the show. Uh, Care.com is a subscription, ooh, that's a tough word, a subscription service uh, that offers the ability to uh, search and connect with local caregivers in uh, child care, senior care, pet care, tutoring, housekeeping, and, uh, and more. It's a, um, a premium membership, allows members to contact caregivers and access background checks, which, as you know, can be very important. And if you're a mental illness happy hour listener and you go to care.com slash happy hour, you'll save 25% off when you become a premium member. Um, I don't know about you, but when it comes to finding somebody to care for my dog or watch the house while I'm gone or something like that, finding a place that I can trust and that is easy, is of utmost importance, and uh, care.com makes the whole process easier. So uh, check them out. Go to Maybe you need a babysitter for your walrus. Maybe you want to find somebody to take grandma breakdancing. Maybe you want to take your dog to the mall and uh, have a try on some shoes. They will provide somebody. Uh, and they have 10.7 million members, so they must be doing something right, huh? So maybe you stop judging them sitting there in your house. In your robe, the big ice cream mustache. That's quite a picture I painted. So go to care.com slash happy hour and save 25% off when you become a premium member. What are, you, what are any feelings coming up as you're, as you're talking about all this stuff? Or you, do you just feel kind of numb or like it's somebody else's life? What do, what do you, because you, as you talk about it, it, um, I get the feeling that, you're almost like talking about somebody else's life. There's, there, there, it feels like there's a separation between you and your. A little, yeah. I mean, I don't. Am I just so? I'm not. I'm not making that. I don't. Up. I don't know. I mean, I just. My life had so much weird things going on in it. It's almost like a storybook about somebody else. Yeah. Um. Because I guess if you began to ch take it all in and feel it, it would be like, you know, trying to eat a 900-pound hamburger. Mm -hmm. It's very overwhelming. Um, and when I, was a, a t when I was a teen, I began bec becoming suicidal. Um, and it was anywhere from cutting. I mean, I never had the courage to cut deep. But I would do that. I, I remember one day I drank poison. But, but the the cutting wasn't to commit suicide. The cutting was no, to deal it, with your feelings. No, it wasn't. Oh, it was I to... was never a cutter. I didn't ever deal with my feelings in that way. Um, I, I wanted to kill myself, but I just, I mean, it hurt. Physically, it hurt. With cutters, I, I believe from what I've heard, it feels good. But um, for me, it hurt, and I kind of chickened out. You know, I, I really did want to kill myself. And there, you know, I would drink poison. Um, oh, gosh. I would, you know, I would drink myself t into oblivion. You know, there was definitely a, a possibility of overdosing. I just didn't care about my life. And I, I'm still kind of at that place in my life. I was actually hospitalized last year in September. Um, I, I tried to throw myself out a window. So the suicidal tendencies, they continue. And the only thing keeping me around right now is probably my kids, because I just can't stand to. How many kids? Do that. 
Um, I have a son. He's 16. And then my daughter is 10. And she's the one that I met? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Bernadette's uh, boyfriend and her daughter uh, dropped her off. Right. Um, and said, go live with Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think your wife will take me in? <laughs> <laughs> and your dogs have to approve of me as well. Oh, you're, you you don't want to put your safety in the hands of Herbert. <laughs> He is not a people person. You know, sometimes I think I trust dogs and animals more than people. I mean... For me, it's not sometimes. It's, it's always. all the times. Yeah. And I've really isolated myself. I'm, I've become an introvert, whereas when I was little, I was always hamming it up. I was an extrovert. Um, yeah, I'm completely... Iso- I isolate myself right now. And so my animals are my constant companions. I mean, they're the love of my life. They don't judge me. They're never mad at me. I can never do anything wrong to disappoint them. They just accept me, and and that's a wonderful feeling. Do you ever feel like you're becoming your mom because you feel oh, yeah. that way? About, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, minus the hypochondria part, um, and minus the, the narcissism, I don't believe that I'm I'm very self-centered like she is, and I she doesn't do it on purpose. It's just that's the way she copes. But um, there's certainly tendencies... Just like that, like the isolation. I mean, she never really wanted to be around anyone, and I don't either anymore. I can't imagine what it's got, to, including your kids. Uh, no, not including my okay. kids. Um, my my boyfriend, my kids. I love being with them, and my animals, and that's it. Okay. I don't like pretty much. I don't like to be around anyone else in my family. What's it like? I would imagine there are times when you get overwhelmed, and the um, aspects of having borderline personality disorder, those buttons get pushed, being a, a parent. What does, what does that feel like? And are there any snapshots you can give me? Um, my son is very even-keeled. I call him my Buddha <laughs> because he's very... Um, there's he, My son is, was actually diagnosed with a low-grade depression called um, dysthymia. And so he doesn't have highs and lows like I do. And so when I when I'm way up high, he's still on that even that even level. And so in a strange way it kind of brings me back down in a way. Um with my daughter, she's a saint. Um she literally is like this wise old woman and trapped in a 10-year-old body. I mean, she says things to me like, you know, if this is what's going to make you happy, then this is what I want for you. And she's 10 and and she's amazing. She is like just a beautiful person. And so it's good for me. I feel like I I don't know how I got lucky and I was matched with this person. Um, My son, he can get difficult just because he hates school and things like that. Typical teenager things. Um, so I, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not as hard as it could be if I had children that, I don't know, that lashed out or I, I guess what I'm saying is if I had a teenager like how I was, mm-hmm. there'd be some real problems. <laughs> Do you ever worry that your children in a emotional way are parenting you oh definitely my daughter for sure and my therapist has warned me about that yeah I, I can't imagine the toll and i don't say this to make you feel 
shame or guilt. Um, but I can't imagine the toll that that is taking on her putting her needs in the back seat because she's afraid of definitely over overwhelming you. Definitely. Um, I, and I do have shame for it. Um, but definitely, I mean, and like I said, my therapist has warned me about that. Like you really need to be careful, like what you tell her and, and, and the things that you're feeling, she said, there's age appropriate things that, you know, she does and doesn't need to know. So I think when I'm depressed, I mean, the other day, Paul, I broke down because I had forgotten to take my meds for a few days and I broke down over the stupidest thing. And I was like sobbing, crying. And this is when I picked her up from school. So the whole way home, she had to listen to me sobbing and it actually made her cry. And I, you know, I feel terrible for that. I put, I do, I put a lot on her and it's not fair. So what are you learning from your therapist? Any tools to help insulate your mm. kids? They they come to therapy with me a lot. Are they starting to express how they feel? They really open up to her. Um, a lot of times she wants to see them without me. And so they'll go in and, and talk to her and they both seem very happy when they're done talking to her. It's almost like they can just take that weight and, and leave it in that room. Um, but that's an ongoing thing. Um, was it your suggestion that the kids come to therapy or hers? It was actually hers. I mean, uh, after my suicide attempt, um, she was like, you're going to bring these kids in. They have to. She sounds like a great therapist. Oh, my God. She's a lifesaver. Talk She's about a godsend. talk about your relationship with her. Give me the arc of it from the first. Was she the first therapist you ever saw? She wasn't, but she's the first therapist that I've seen in years. And did did your relationship with her feel different than your relationship with other therapists? Oh yeah, my mom, you know, forced me to go to therapy all through my childhood, and I hated it. Um, there you was didn't, you didn't feel like you connected. Oh, absolutely none. Plus, I was a teenager, and so I was like, I'm not talking to you. You know, she she put me with a pastor therapist one time, and he was like this old man, and it's like I I don't I can ad- identify with you. You know, I'm not gonna open up. Did he? So. Did he? do his stuff kind of through the prism of god yeah and stuff like definitely that. and my like i said my cam- family is catholic i mean strict I, I went to church every sunday catechism all of that um and i i also didn't ever feel like i fit into the church and so for him to be my therapist definitely didn't suit me did you was there a feeling that the that there wasn't the compassion and it was kind of more of a you just need to get closer to to God thing? Or was there a feeling that he understands what I'm feeling and he has empathy for my for my pain? I think he was genuinely, you know, concerned or whatever and trying to do his thing. But it's it's pretty hard when the other person isn't reciprocating or participating in yeah. it. Um so talk about the therapist that you have now. Um what you felt like before you went to see her, what you felt like during your first session, and if that how you feel about her has progressed, what that is what what that is like. Yeah, um so she is actually like maybe a year or two younger than me. Beautiful. How how old are you? 
I'm 36. Okay. And she is just beautiful. I mean, physically just gorgeous. And so, and then she has this warmth about her. Um, so I automatically, you know, in that way felt drawn to her and comfortable. Um, she kind of explained to me what her specialty, I guess, if you will, um, the EMDR is kind of what she's into. And, and we've done some sessions of that. And it's... And it's e- EMDR, for people that, that don't know, it stands for Eye Movement Desensitization uh, Reprogramming. I always forget what the last yeah, one stands for. I, and I can't say desensitization very good, so I'm glad you did it. <laughs> um, and it uh, helps with trauma people who've, who've been through trauma and you kind of basically you go back and you relive that trauma but because your eyes are moving it helps rewire your brain that's the that's the theory behind it but sorry to to interrupt you to, no, to interject that no that's fine um so um you knew that she specialized in that right and so you know i i'm kind of of your philosophy if i'm going to take the time you know to come to this person, I'm going to tell them 100%. Oh, that's awesome. Because there's no reason for me to lie to her. What was the first thing that you told her where you might have had some trepidation that you were going to be judged? Or were, was there never that that case? Um, Did you feel instantly safe? Yes, her? I did. I did feel instantly safe with her. Um, I think that I tread lightly sometimes with the alcoholism, but with her, I just, I say it how it is because like I said, there's nothing for me to gain by holding back. Um, but with other people, I certainly hide my alcoholism. I mean, the only people that know that I'm alcoholic is like my mom, my brother, and then my kids and my, my, um, partner. It is so shameful for me. I don't tell other people about it. She's she is like the only person. Um, my my partner, my boyfriend, he knows everything about it. He hates my drinking with a passion. I've been given ultimatums, um, and he's pretty much had it with me. Has he ever gotten help for being the loved like one, Alan, on or something? No, he won't go. And my therapist keeps trying to urge him to go to therapy, and he will not go. And so he's not. The way that my therapist describes it is we all have a container inside of us and sometimes you're full and every tiny little drop you've added onto that, it makes you just snap at the smallest thing. And that's where he's at right now. He is so full of rage and fear. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He doesn't know what to do with me. He's just up in arms. He's like, what do I do with this person? I love her, but I can't live like this anymore. He's like, I can't, I just can't do this. I don't deserve it. That's what he tells me all the time. I don't deserve this. And he's right. What does that bring up in you? Shame? Oh, yeah, definitely. Guilt, shame, all of that. And what do you tell him when he says that stuff? I don't make false promises. I do not. You say, I can't promise I'm going to be able to quit drinking or choose to quit drinking? The problem is, is I don't want to. Hmm. You know, I'm in... I'm in therapy for it. Um, Like I said, I'm in outpatient rehab, but it doesn't have any impact on me because I don't want to quit. Like I said, it's so hard for me to let go of this familiar security that I've had 
you know, over half of my life. Do you go to support groups outside of your outpatient rehab? I don't. Um, basically, has that, has that been suggested to you? I've well, I have gone for depression. Um, I, but I'm talking about for your for your alcoholism. Yeah, I mean the the whole the whole thing when we go, it's it's a circle of people, and we're all sharing. So it's a support group about addiction. But I do find that the aspect of my mental illnesses are not addressed mm-hmm. in there. Um, they do do um, the dialectical therapy behavior. Which um, is supposed to help with borderline personality yeah. disorder. And I've done the workbook and I just don't feel like I'm getting a whole lot out of anything. Well, I'm going to interject my opinion, which is that with alcohol and drug abuse, it it smothers almost any other type of help. Until I got sober, I didn't have a chance in hell of treating my mental illness. Exactly. And I could only see it once I got sober for a while and Mm -hmm. I began to feel my depression and my rage lift. Yes, yes. Oh, definitely, because I quit. um, What's the longest you've ever been sober? uh, Probably when I was pregnant and nursing. I just, I quit. Um, and I've, I quit cold Turkey probably about six months ago and I was sober for a good three months and I felt amazing. I felt like, oh my God, because I'm not drinking anymore, my mood has lifted. Um, but there's something about that feeling inside that, that drink that just, it, it just trumps everything else. There are feelings that drugs and alcohol, if you're an addict or an alcoholic, there are feelings that drugs and alcohol, when the buzz is good, that it releases a euphoria that is inaccessible in other areas of your life. And it's so, for people that aren't addicts or alcoholics, it's so hard for them to understand because the way their body processes drugs and alcohol is different. Mm -hmm. Um it's like, different. It's kind of like your primi- primitive brain. What is it? The amygdala or something mm-hmm. that's kind of telling you, you know, you have your frontal lobe that's like the reason. And it's like, don't do this. But then you have your, you know, reptile brain saying, go do it now. You need it now. Go. And that's what I do. Isn't I just, it funny how you can be on your way to go do something mm-hmm. that you are screaming, don't go do this. And and it doesn't help that there's a liquor store in every corner. Yeah. And I live in Colorado, and my therapist actually suggested possibly doing, um, changing over to marijuana. Um, not, my, not permanently, I imagine. No. Um, and she's not saying, like, do it on a regular basis. And this isn't my um, outpatient therapist. This is my, my private therapist. Right. Um, my rehab therapist absolutely does not want you know to substitute one for the other um but i mean i can see where she's coming from you know i mean it's legal in colorado now so i guess if i wanted to i could but i don't know it's just there's something about that the alcohol feeling that can't be matched And the terrible things that it does when you're you're thinking on it, you know, it just affects people around you. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why I isolate. I don't want to have an impact, a negative impact on people. They don't need that drama from me and I don't need that drama from them. 
And yet that absence does affect them. I don't, yeah, maybe I don't not, care. Maybe not <laughs> as bad as, you know, if you're drunk and abusive. Do you get abusive when you drink? No, but I do have anger. So I'll, you know, if somebody rubs me the wrong way and they start pushing, yeah, I I explode. I, I take it out on myself a lot. You know, like I said, I'm very suicidal. So um, that night that I tried to throw myself out the window, I was blackout drunk. I'd bought my boyfriend an $800 ring um, in January of 2013. And that night, I took that ring. And to this day, I don't know where it's at. And that ring symbolized a lot for us. But even now, he, he says... Well, it was given to me under false pretenses because we had split up for a little while there. And when I came back, there was an understanding that I would try to get sober. Mm-hmm. Now he's to the point where he's just trying to, I don't know what he's trying to do. I, you know, I, I feel terrible for him and I can't blame him if he wants to be done with me. We have a six year relationship. Give me some snapshots from your life that, I mean, you have already, but are there any other snapshots that that you want to add that you think have informed who who you are or influenced who you are today? I think that my whole life um, I had to be with somebody. And I've heard guests on your show in the past say the same thing, women. Like, you go from one boyfriend to the next, you know, and, and men as equally. I know as many yeah. men that are Just love addicts. codependent. Yeah. yeah. Or codependent, whatever. Yeah, definitely. And that's how I was. I, I never had an independence to myself. There was maybe like a a three-month gap period there where I had my own place. I had my son with me. I mean, it was just us two, and it was pretty good, but I was still drinking a lot then. But I think that there's a problem with trying to lean on other people and not look at yourself and be independent. Talk, talk more about that if you can. Um, well, for the, for the, the biggest problem I have is alcoholism. I mean, obviously it's going to be really hard to progress, um, as a, a spiritual individual or in any way, really a responsible partner. Exactly. I mean, even it affects me physically. Like if I drink that night, the next morning, I'm probably not going to go running, you know, so it affects me in so many different ways. And that has to be addressed first before I can move on. I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck. And I I actually feel like I'm going backward. And I have dreams where I'm falling. And I, I feel like that's really symbolic. There's definitely like that spiritual aspect to it. Um, that's the darkness. That's kind of like that um, demon on your back. Boy, do I know that. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. And mm-hmm. that's why suicide seems like such a great option. Because yeah. it's, it's like what I would imagine a burnt out soldier, how they feel about getting to go on leave. You know, it's like, I just need out of this but then yet they carry it with them still they carry all that post-traumatic stuff with them 
And that's what I'm doing. I'm carrying around all that heavy burden shit from the past. And, and that's what my therapist is trying to do with the EMDR is just the way she explains it is having that container inside of you, but pulling the plug from underneath so that it can drain out. And so that's what I'm trying to do right now. And I can only do one day at a time, you know? How many uh, sessions of EMDR have you done? Um, over the course, I mean, sometimes we'll have just sessions of talk therapy, so it's not every week, but I would say probably a good five times. I've been seeing her for a little, I guess, about eight months. Um, and sometimes she chooses not to because the days that we do it, that night when I go home, I become very emotional. It's like it's bringing everything to the surface and you're feeling it so intensely. And sometimes you just, it's overwhelming. And I, I don't think she wants to overwhelm me. So she does it nice and slow with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the few sessions of EMDR I did, I went home. I was so exhausted. I went home and slept. Like the, the first session uh, that where I felt that way, I'd slept till noon. I saw her at like 2 o'clock and I went home and by 4 o'clock, I slept from like 4 to 7, like the deepest, deepest sleep. I was so completely exhausted and I yeah. understand that that's normal. Yeah, definitely. Um, what Have you felt any positive change from the EMDR? Um, I don't know yet. It's too soon to say. I, I, like I said, I still feel like I'm dragging around this old shit. And so in that sense, no, I haven't let it go. Um, I do feel like I've established a good, um, container and a good safe place. Um, and that's a start because I really struggled with that for a while. Finding those places in my mind where I can kind of just put that stuff and leave it for a while. Um, but progression is slow. Do you worry sometimes that you're going to have to burn your life to the ground to be willing to quit drinking? Oh, yeah. My my rehab therapist constantly reminds me of that. I mean, and there's people around me in that support group that they're, they're, they've been there. They've lost their kids. They've lost their home, their cars. They, they can't drive. You know, all of this stuff. And thank God, you know, I haven't yet, but like I said, I'm, my boyfriend's, and we live together, so he's just on the verge of going over the edge. He didn't seem too happy when he dropped you off. Oh, no. He, I mean, and we were at Disneyland yesterday, Paul, and, you know, Disney Disneyland's supposed to be like the happiest place on earth, and- That's I'm, just to the shareholders of Disney. <laughs> money, money. Um... And, you know, I didn't see him smile once when we were there. Wow. Did and your, did, I feel a lot of the responsibility of that. <laughs> did your um, did your daughter enjoy herself? She did, but um, she said she mentioned something about his demeanor to me today. And, you know, she's sensitive to that. I would imagine if with all that she's been through, that's like her number one way of processing things is, is everybody else happy? Then I can be happy. That saddens me a lot. That's not fair to her. 
And that's the power of alcoholism, that it can, mm. despite that. But that's what I was thinking about the support group. All of those people in there, they talk about their addictions, but there's no addressing the mental illness part. And that's what I'm missing. It's like, yes, I'm dealing with the addiction, but I also have these other things going on that these people, I can't relate to them about. What about also getting into a support group for having um, depression and or I need to. I need to. And I had gone to a few um, right down the street from my house. And one of the ladies knew somebody I work with. And she told them what I was saying in there. That's so beyond fucked up. And mm-hmm. there is that occasional person. But it, it is. So I just need to find. Far between. Yeah. I need to find something else. But you're right. I do need to start connecting with people about that. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before we um, do some fears and loves? Um I think I have some here. I, I apologize. Why don't you just start with, with your fears, and I'll see if I can find some. Okay. You're not going to Miles Davis it? Uh, I, I will. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try. Okay. Um, you know, my number one fear is a lot of parents fear um, losing my children, whether by di- by death or kidnapping or any of that. That is, like, something I think about constantly every day. Uh, I'm afraid that... I will suddenly uh, have a strong urge to be a parent and it will be too late and I will hate myself and feel like um, I wasted my life in some way. Um, This is a silly one. Uh, My car breaking down in the middle of a busy street. Um, I'm afraid that... um, I've shared this one before, but it's it's on my brain a lot, especially when I go to exercise, is that I am slowly um, pushing myself towards a heart attack. Um, I'm afraid of getting in screaming fright, fights in front of my kids. I'm afraid that I my weight is going in the wrong direction, and I'm kidding myself and thinking that it's ever going to go back to I have that yeah that's why I keep all my old pairs of pants that I can never fit into again (laughs) Um, I'm afraid that my boyfriend will continue to treat me as a child for the rest of my life I'm afraid when I see pictures of myself or video of myself and I'm grossed out by how fat my face is I'm afraid that other people feel that same way when they see my big pumpkin head (laughs) I'm afraid that I will become so enraged that I'll actually strike somebody one day I have that I have that fear too but it's only on the the, um on the ice that that I feel that way yeah um I'm afraid that I'm never going to um if we keep playing this women's team I'm afraid that I'm going to look crazier and crazier to my teammates for refusing to play them. And and eventually they're just going to be, uh, let's not invite Paul to, to play this season because he has to sit those games out. 
I'm afraid that uh, I haven't heard we played them in the playoffs last night, and I haven't heard whether we won or not, and I'm afraid of the guilt I will feel if we lost to them and that my teammates will secretly hate me. And these are the women, the the women? Yeah, yeah. And it and it really, it's not the entire team. It's just about five of the, the women on that team that um, just bring up things in me and... Um, so it's not about losing to women, it's no. something else. No, although I'd be lying if I didn't say that a part of my masculinity fears losing to a women's team, but they're really talented and they're they're really good. If they had the muscle mass of men, they would be beating us 15 to nothing. Nice. Um, I'll it's do, it's I not guess. nice. I'll <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'll do one more. Um, I have others, but I'll do just one more. Um I'm afraid of people trying to worm their way or pry their way into my life. Let's go to some loves. Okay. Uh, my favorite one is getting chills from a song. Oh, I love that one. I get that every time I listen to uh, someone like you by Adele. And it makes me... Oh, me too. And it makes me like, really? She has the most beautiful, like, scratchy voice. Yeah. You can hear, it's like, amazing. almost how part of her voice is a little too dry yeah it's like and you it, want to give her a glass of water but it's totally works for the song oh yeah it's what makes her uh on great. that note i love when the woman's voice cracks in the song give me shelter <laughs> yeah famous um i love hitting all the green lights on the way to work i love um when i'm able to comfort my wife and I feel like it has helped our relationship and helped her in the moment. Um, I love the way my dog loves me and uh, that I don't have to worry about disappointing him or saying the wrong things. I love when both of my dogs have cones on their heads. <laughs> what for? Our, like a birthday? <laughs> uh, no, you know, the cones so they don't chew, oh, chew at their uh, yeah, hot the, spots. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, there's something in the air and they've both been chewing like crazy. And so we had to put them both in cones. I'm like thinking of a dunce cap for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is my last one. I love my grandma's corned beef and cabbage. I love when I scratch Herbert's butt and he looks at me with almost like... <laughs> It's like a love in his eyes, like he's so at peace, and and he tilts his head at me at such an angle that all that I get to see all of the bottom row of his tiny little teeth, and it looks like a strip of baby corn. I love that. Yeah. Well, uh, Bernadette, thank you for coming and sharing your life with us, and I um I hope things head in the right direction um, for you, and uh, I really appreciate your honesty because I think it takes a lot of bravery to come and talk about the ways that you feel like you're um, failing as a parent. I think that takes a lot of bravery. Mm -hmm. And um, Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Many thanks to, uh, to Bernadette. And um, just for your information, we did, uh, my team did beat the, uh, the, the women's team. And uh, so we advanced to the finals and we won the championship. And, uh, and none of my teammates made fun of me, which, uh, which was a relief. Sounds kind of pathetic, but I was afraid they were all going to start making fun of me. But I think they understand. Anyway, one of my down rickles. Anyway, before we get to some surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. You can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and uh, 
You can make a one-time PayPal donation or a recurring one for as little as five bucks a month. It's really easy to do and it means the world to me. It uh, it really helps. Um, you can also search... Uh, when you're going to shop at Amazon, enter through our search portal on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down, and uh, that way Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. doesn't cost you anything. And you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. Let's get to it. Um, I think that was it. Yeah, that was it for the uh, the announcements. This is from the very rarely mentioned um, survey call it, called the Handling Sexual Advances uh, Survey. And um, this one was filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Wade. He's straight in his 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was 15, I was in the house of my grandmother who had recently passed. My cousin and her friends, who were younger than me but were already into drugs and sexual promiscuity, held the door closed while one of my cousin's friends tried for a very long time to get me to kiss her and take my clothes off. I was struggling and scared uh, because my mom was in the next room and really, I was completely out of my element. I remember it all, but I don't remember what I was thinking. Have you ever been manipulated or pressured into engaging in a sexual act? Kind of. Uh, one time, an ex-girlfriend wouldn't listen to me when I said it was over, and she held me down and had sex with me. Male rape is tricky because it requires an erection, but even if that state arises, it still leaves me feeling used and powerless. We still started dating again later and broke up again, and we talked about that day and how I kept saying no. She said she felt crazy when she did it. Um, have you ever initially said no or resisted a sexual advance because you didn't want to appear easy, quote, easy, then minutes or hours later, quote, gave in to the desire that was there from the beginning? Uh, to that, he says no. Uh, check any of the following that apply uh, to the history of people making sexual advances on you that you definitely didn't want. Uh, and the ones he checked are, I clearly said no, and it stopped. I clearly said no, they persisted, and I gave in. I clearly said no, and I was violated. I kind of resisted, and it stopped. I kind of resisted, but was violated. I gave in because I was afraid of making them mad, and I gave in because I felt guilty that they weren't getting what they wanted. Um, check any of the following that apply to sexual advances made on you that you liked, but weren't ready for right then. Uh, I kind of resisted because I get turned on by their persistence. I didn't give in, though. Um, check any of the following that apply to sexual advances that you definitely wanted. Uh, I kind of resisted because I didn't want to appear easy. I eventually gave in. I didn't resist at all because I was ready to be sexual, but I worry I might have looked too, quote, easy. And I didn't resist at all because I was ready to be sexual and was comfortable with my choice. Anything you'd like to share about your history in dealing with sexual advances made on you? Uh, I wait for women to make the first move with me usually. This has led to some situations where I am submissive sexually, and I like this because I like feeling feminine. I am not necessarily transgender. I don't think wanting to be submissive and feminine um, are and told that I am pretty or gorgeous necessarily entails that I want to be a woman. How did answering these questions make you feel? Um, 
answering them, I feel like I'm the weirdest man that has ever been in my family's bloodline. <laughs> oh. Um, and he asks, uh, is there a forum? Yes, there is a, is a forum, so I encourage you to go um, check it out. He would also like to hear a mini-episode about jealousy or self-discipline. I think those would be great topics, uh, too, as well. Thank you, uh, thank you for that, Wade. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Melody in C. And she writes, Years ago, I spent a year living in Croatia as an exchange student. There were several other exchange students living in the city where I was, and we all became very close over the course of that year. One night during our last week there uh, will always stand out as a very happy memory for me. We all got together for dinner and had a great time reminiscing about the past year. As the evening wore on, we took the party outside and down to the seaside. It was summertime, and the air was warm and cozy. Eventually, someone suggested that we all go skinny dipping in the Adriatic. It was late, and we were far enough from the shops and restaurants that we wouldn't be seen, so I agreed, even though I'm no fan of skinny dipping. As soon as we got into the water and started splashing and swimming around, we noticed that the water was glowing. With every splash and movement, tiny bioluminescent organisms were giving off light, creating a surreal look in the water. It was so magical. It was such a special moment being there with my good friends in the glittery warm water in this wonderful foreign country that we had grown to love, knowing that it was all coming to an end in a few days, but so grateful that we had had this experience. That is beautiful. Unfortunately, it was nuclear fallout and she's dead. I couldn't resist. Could not resist. Um, And is there anything better than skinny dipping? There is... I don't know if women feel the same way, but um, when you get those swim trunks off and you feel uh, water uh, on your, uh, mm-hmm. there, it is just, uh, God, it's such a, a freeing feeling. It probably feels exactly the same for women. What am I talking about? This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself a real bastard. I like him already. And uh, he is straight in his 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but has been emotionally abused. Um, My mother uh, has some serious trust and emotional issues, and I was and am one of the handful of people that she feels comfortable with. The problem is that she feels too comfortable. I always thought it was unhealthy how close she wants us to be. But through listening to this show and the discussion of abusive and overbearing or overbearing mothers, I'm realizing that my mother has been using me as a surrogate husband. Thankfully, there's been no sex or touching of private areas, uh, and we don't even really hug or anything. But the fact that she sabotages every move I make to try to move out of the house and how she always avoids both dating um, and finding friends, how she looks for ways to, quote, prove to me that she needs me around the house and needs help. Um, She does have legitimate physical limitations, but come on. All of these things seem to lead me to conclude that she just wants me around to talk about her day and her various other bullshit. Whenever she is discussing the future, it is always us, as if we were somehow always bound together. I mean, it's complicated because her parents are fucking monsters, and so I understand that she didn't have any chance to be normal, and I also understand that she didn't choose to have me. I was a rape child, but at some point, something has to give. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Well, I mean, she does have a way of seeming like she cares, and she can be encouraging as long as the things I'm trying to do don't involve me, quote, abandoning her. The problem is that increasingly it doesn't 
seem like anything other than getting away from her is going to make me happier. She can also be kind and generous at times, and she is very smart and has a good sense of humor, so there are times when she is fun to be around. Darkest Thoughts I mentioned earlier that I was a rape child, meaning my mother got pregnant by her rapist. Um, What arguably makes it worse is that she knew the rapist and was in fact dating him, but he wanted sex before she did and took it. You can't imagine how hard it is growing up with that monster inside you. I mean, literally, this piece of garbage is part of me. Being a rape child has fucked up my sexuality in two ways. One, which I'm working on fixing, and another, which probably won't be fixed. The first way is that I am deathly scared of abusing women. Now, it is good that I don't want to abuse women, don't get me wrong, but the palpable fear in my mother's meddling has made it impossible for me to have any type of romantic relationship. I've been a legal adult for over a decade, but I haven't even kissed or held hands with a woman, let alone lose my virginity. I hope one day I will be able to have a healthy romantic relationship. The other way is that I cannot have biological children. I mean, technically, I could, but I don't think that would be a good idea. Let's see. Half my genetics come from my mom and her abusive family. The other half from a rapist. How would the kids even have a chance? That kind of breaks my heart, and it makes me think, um, you know, the prevailing theory on mental illness and... and um disorders uh is that yes there's a genetic predisposition but there's also a nurturing factor and in an abandoning or traumatic environment that switch can get flipped so who is to say if you were a present parent um uh, you know i i think i think the right environment can do wonders i guess that's what i'm trying to say and i and I think there's also some basis in science of of saying that. So, but I have thought that same thought that that you have, which is, I, I don't want to have a fucking depressed, alcoholic child. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So I, I get it. But uh, deepest darkest secrets. When I was younger, I was a bully for a while. That was when I was like seven or eight. But I still sometimes think that some of the shitty life that I have had since is my penalty for teasing other children at my elementary school because i don't have the ability to date right now i watch pornography most days i don't necessarily think watching porn is bad but sometimes when i look at the actresses it is really sad i mean i get the reason why i'm aroused is that they're physically very good looking but it just seems like they're not being treated that well in the scenes and i hope i don't get warped to the point where i end up treating women like that in the future well i think the fact that you're aware of that is is good um, but I do think that um, if the majority of our sexual experience is experiencing um, people that we're attracted to through situations that are purely fantasy and not based in reality, there I think there is a danger that it can begin to warp our, our view and m- make it difficult to have a relationship that has elements of compromise and... Um, you know, the thing about jerking off that's so great, but also kind of damaging in the long run is you can have it exactly how you want it. You can make everything perfect, you know, find the right scene to masturbate to touch yourself in the, in the way that, you know, is perfect for you. But, um, I think you can kind of, I don't know if spoil is the right word, but, um, you know what I'm saying. 
Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. You know, I guess my fantasies are pretty vanilla. I want to have sex with a woman who I love, and she loves me, and we both make sure that there's mutual enjoyment going on. That's about it. Sharing that makes me feel like I might be at least a little bit normal. Um, anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mom's family and her rapist how they have destroyed her life and by extension mine. Of course, that probably wouldn't help anything, but the thought is appealing. I would also like to tell my mother to stop playing the victim. That sounds like that would, I don't know if that phrasing of it would be um, good, but um, certainly talking about how you feel, I think, would be huge. And I think if you went to therapy, that's probably one of the places that your therapist would start would be to encourage you to begin to communicate and set boundaries uh, with your mom. Um, Anything, what if anything you wish for? I wish for a chance at a decent life, love and happiness. Uh, for myself, yes, but really for everybody. Well, you just sound like such a great guy. I hate that you have such, um, that you feel like you have a monster inside you because you clearly sound like you don't. You clearly sound like you are a compassionate, um, self-aware person um, That that's too hard on himself. And um, I think, I don't know. I think you should... Um, Maybe make more of an effort to be social uh, with with women and um, give yourself a chance. Give women a chance to, uh, to love you and uh, tell your mom to shut the fuck up and back off. Maybe find a better way to say it than that. Uh, have you shared any of these things with others? A little bit, but it doesn't seem to go over too well. Like, seriously, men need to be able to talk to each other about feelings like women do. I will high-five you on that one. And I can tell you, I found a group of guys that I can talk about that with, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, these two um, young women came up to me after I shared my support group the other night, and they're in their early 20s, and they said, because I was pretty worked up, and I started crying when I was sharing, and they said, it's so nice to see a man be, be vulnerable um, because it, it lets us know that all men might not be um, like the guys that, that we've dated. And it, it, it really touched me. And then I felt horrible about the women in my past that I've mistreated. I went into a shame spiral. Hmm. How do you feel after writing these things down? Well, I feel that I was able to get out of the truth get out the truth of my life right now. I'm not sure it makes me feel better, but hopefully it helps somebody else and that would feel good if it did. Um, and he suggests having a uh, child of rape on the program. And I would, if you are a, a child of rape, um, I would definitely love to hear your story. So if you're going to be in LA, um, email me and let me know. I warn all of my guests um, before we record that I can't promise their episode will ever air. So just um, just know that. But um, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And I'm going to refuse to call you real bastard because um, I think that's too harsh. I'm going to call you a cocksucker. How's that grab you? This is a happy moment filled out by Ginger. She's in her 20s. And her happy moment is, when my husband was courting me, he would introduce new songs to me. He's an amazing musician, so he always pointed out different parts to songs that 
never would have paid attention to. My favorite song he showed me is I Will Possess Your Heart by Death Cab for Cutie. My husband is a bass player, and the bass line in this song is not only the main riff in the song, but wonderful. The in- intro goes on for about two minutes. The lyrics in the song are a little obvious. Uh, he knew I would fall in love with him, and I did. Now, after a year of marriage, we still listen to his, quote, mixtape of songs. Every time I hear that bass line, I remember him bringing that song to me, the smile on his face, and the butterflies in my belly. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Don't beat yourself up so much. You were good at this. You were meant to do this. Take as much time as you want. It's your fucking show. And don't stop cracking bad jokes. They are perfect. Now go fuck yourself. That is basically, if you could if you could put every nice comment in a subject, if you could if you could file them into different categories, every nice email I've ever gotten, that's it in in one in one sentence. And uh, that warms my heart. Thank you for saying that. This is from a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Poppy Blue. She is uh, bisexual in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but um, has been emotionally abused. And she writes, I grew up with all the greatest hits of having an emotionally abusive alcoholic father. Writing the words emotionally abusive still feels wrong because I feel like writing or saying it lets him win something over me. My father would give me little glimpses of his affection, but by the time I reached age 10, I never saw that side anymore. He was completely absent even when he was looking into his daughter's pleading eyes. I begged him to love me, and he left the room. Before I even turned 11, he asked my stepdad to adopt me and officially graduated from emotional abandonment to real abandonment. Oh, that breaks my heart. Any positive experiences with him? Yes, I have a handful of memories of my dad being a funny, smart, and dare I say happy person. To further complicate my hatred towards him, as I've gotten older, I see these parts of my personality that are so obviously from him, both good and bad. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about destroying every single positive thing I have in my life because I'm afraid that if I get too comfortable in my happiness, I won't be strong enough. Wow, that is heavy. Uh, darkest secret. My darkest secret is that I still long for my father's love with the same intensity that I have when longing for with the same intensity that I have when longing for his funeral. I don't wish him physical harm. I just wish he would stop existing in the same world as me. I relate to that one. I relate to that one. Thank you, Poppy. This is an awfulsome moment, very brief, from Hi There, and she writes, When my grandmother told me she had cancer, it was in a Christmas card. That may, that may be our most lethally potent, tiny, awfulsome moment. That is concise and uh, awful. This is the Shame and Secret survey filled out by... Um, a woman who calls herself Cozy Blanket. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a stable, mostly stable and safe, uh, but times of extreme chaos. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse uh, and reported it. She was sexually harassed multiple times in high school by four different guys. Uh, she's been both physically and mentally abused. Um, I've been physically and emotionally abused, uh, physically and emotionally abused uh, by my mother's second husband. I don't know if I could necessarily call it emotional abuse, 
but I've been bullied in small doses by my mother and grandmother during my early teenage years. Any positive experiences with the abusers? No, my mother's second husband, who was my stepfather at the time, was a complete asshole. He was a total sociopath and was addicted to crack. Uh, While I can, I hate when crack smoking people give crack smokers a bad name. While I can understand that his drug use may have played a role in his abuse um, against not just myself, but my mother and sister as well, I don't believe it is any excuse for how he treated us. He can eat a bowl of hot dicks. Uh, Can I just say, if you are going to serve a hot bowl of dicks, um, let them cool down before you serve it to your guests. Um, That is it for the end of that riff. I thought there was going to be something more. Hot bowl of dicks. Cooled off real fast. I love any container overflowing with dicks. Bag of dicks, hot bowl of dicks. Uh, How about a steamer trunk full of dicks? For some of our old timers, for some of our flappers, that's how they used to when they when they'd take a trip over to Liverpool, they'd make sure some of the lonelier old ladies would make sure to bring a steamer trunk full of dicks. I hope somebody is listening to this in their car, with their windows down at an intersection. Darkest thoughts: My grandmother is bedridden due to previous illness. Myself and my mother care for her at home. She often lashes out, spewing the most vile hatred at my mother in particular. She has accused my mother of being a whore, a drug addict, and has even accused my mother of sleeping with her own father simply out of spite. I believe all of this anger comes from her inability to do things herself. It must be hard having someone bathe you and change your diaper every day, but she shows almost no gratitude. Um, I've sat by my mother's side while she sobbed uncontrollably over the things my grandmother has said to her. You ugly whore. You're a bitch. You're ugly. I hate your guts. I hope they fall out, she says to my mom repeatedly. Yet my mom stays by her side, feeding her, bathing her, changing her every single day. When I hear her yelling these things to my mother, I become so angry and so hurt. I often fantasize of her choking on her own words against her daughter. I'll mouth the words, shut up and just die, you selfish old bitch. I love my grandmother dearly and try hard to understand her disposition, but she has become such a spiteful old hag. Steal her steamer trunk full of dicks. That has got to be so hard to sit by and watch your mom get verbally abused by your grandmother. Man, codependence is just... It is every bit as powerful as heroin or any other addiction. Darkest Secrets. Uh, This one time in high school, uh, right before gym class, I was getting ready to change into my gym clothes when I realized that I needed to pee. I needed to pee really bad. I walked around the corner to see that the toilet stalls were full, but the toilets weren't being used for their purpose. Instead, the popular girls that gave me hell that year were changing in the stalls. Hey, can one of you hurry up? I shouted, and they laughed and chattered on about non chattered on about nonsense. Fed up with a full bladder, I walked back towards the lockers and popped a squat right over one of the girls' gym bags. I peed on her belongings, pulled up my pants, and went on to play volleyball with the rest of the class. That is awfulsome. That was an awfulsome moment buried in the shame and secret survey. I enjoy it. I'm not even going to read any more of your survey because nothing can nothing can top that. That is um, so fucking great. 
That's like from a Tina Fey movie, you know? That is that is just great. Um, here's an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Big J. After a lifetime of beatings and mental abuse by my father, I had one night that changed my life forever. I had taken a shower and he came into the bathroom and started screaming at me because the steam from my shower was going to rot his walls. He was screaming like a maniac as usual and he cocked back his fist to hit me and purely out of instinct, I cocked back mine also and he flinched. I was 15 and had outgrown him. I was two inches taller and outweighed him by 20 pounds. It never occurred to me that he could be scared of me. He never hit me again. But he still kept all all the metal torture until I turned 23 and got away from him. But the spell had been broken. I I read that quite frequently um, about that happening. And um, God, it's, it's just like those people that... that it's like they're in a trance the like they can't see themselves you know that must be at the core of it is that they feel invisible they can't see what they're doing because they're just so wrapped up in their in their fear or their anger or whatever this is uh shame and secrets uh filled out by a woman who calls herself wendy darling she's straight in her 20s and i just wanted to read part of this um What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? Um, She writes, I would love to be able to confide in my younger brother about my struggles with depression and anxiety and the loneliness I feel sometimes. However, I still want him to look up to me, so I just can't bear to do it. And you know, that made me think, what a great example for you to be an older sister and to show that this is stuff that we go through and that it's human to feel that way and that the way through it is to open up to somebody who's safe. You know, I think this would be different if you were 25 years old and he was 13. Um, but, you know, if he's, I, I'd say, you know, at least 16 years old, um, I, I think that's something that you could you could probably share with him. Um, and the other thing that I would say maybe it would be if you were like his sole caregiver, if both your parents weren't around and you were raising him, then maybe that would be inappropriate. But... What a great example to um, a chance to to be a, a great example of a of an older sister. What if anything do you wish for? I would love to feel relaxed. I literally can't remember the last time I didn't feel incredible stress. I think it's been years and years. I have the feeling if you shared that stuff with your your brother or somebody that you love, you might feel some uh, some relief. Um, I am in therapy, but it's hard for me. Sharing these things is so unpleasant that sometimes I feel like vomiting right there in the session. I still struggle to open up to friends because I'm an outwardly funny, friendly, and gregarious person, and I can't help feeling like people won't like me if I'm I'm not happy and funny. And honestly, people have proven me right on that point again and again. I write plays and put all my despair into my characters. How do you feel after writing these things down? Dead. I'm looking back over these boxes and struggling not to edit them. Even the way I word things annoys me. Well, we should start a club. Because if I had a nickel for every time I stopped recording and and re-recorded something because I sickened myself, um, I wouldn't have to ask for donations. Uh, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish we could meet so we could talk to each other. I wish we could realize we're not alone. And that's what support groups are for. They're so good for that. Thank you, uh, Wendy. And uh, maybe check out the forum. 
This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mom Shit, and she's in her 30s. Uh, her awfulsome moment. Growing up, I was well aware of my mom's opinion that if a woman got raped or molested by a man, it must be because she did something to deserve it, like acting inappropriately, etc. Recently, I was visiting her and she related to me an incident where an older man that went to seek advice um, that, that, that she went to seek advice from started coming on to her. She seemed so indignant when she related the story, so I reminded her of her theory and pointed out that she must have done something to deserve it. She was so offended and told me that in her case it was different, but when I pressed her for an explanation on how it was different, all she could do was stutter and change the subject. That's pretty fucking awfulsome. This is just a, um, this is from a shame and secret survey, and I just wanted to read an excerpt from this. Um, this is from a woman who calls herself Confession Chica, and she is straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, darkest thoughts. Uh, in the past, I've been very ashamed of being on prescription meds for depression and ADHD long term. A uh, long term. I really want to have children, and I'm afraid of going off my meds during pregnancy and breastfeeding. I'm afraid no one will like who I am off meds and that I won't be able to do my job. I've been taking these medications for over 10 years and I don't even know who I am off of them, and that's scary. I've tried to go off of them, but it's never lasted more than a few days because it's so hard. When I think about this, I feel concerned and afraid for the future. Um, I just want to con uh, comment that um, f for the uh, huge... Um, number of meds are completely safe to be on while you're pregnant and while you're breastfeeding. So talk to your um, doctor or your psychiatrist about that. Um, darkest secrets. When I was nine years old, uh, a few uh, a few of my girlfriends and I play, played a pretty evil prank. We took a paper cup. All of us went into the bathroom together and peed in it. Then we walked into our after-school area and dumped the pee into the snack juice while no one was looking. The whole after-school class drank our pee, and we just sat there and giggled. Children are such sociopaths. That they, that they definitely can be. Um, what, if anything, you would like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, I have an aunt who reminds me a lot of your description of your mother in some ways. She has borderline personality disorder, is an alcoholic, and is addicted to a whole slew of prescription meds. She lives far away, but she has a habit of drunk dialing everyone in my family in the middle of the night. When I do pick up the phone and she's drunk, she literally won't stop talking and chattering. She goes into a 10-minute monologue that is painfully boring and inane. It feels like someone is pooping into my brain when she talks. In general, she does not respect other people's boundaries and needs. It's all about her. When I set a boundary with her, she says I'm a selfish person. And when I let her walk all over me, she lavishes me with praise. I would like to say to her, if you're going to talk to me, here are the rules. One, please only call me when you're sober. Two, please do not call me after 9 p.m. Three, please do not speak in a monologue. Ask questions about my life and really listen. Don't just turn everything I say into something about you. These things are so basic that they are embarrassing to say. Plus, she's so far away, and I would prefer to have that conversation in person. For now, I'm not speaking to her. I think that's awesome. I think you really got that. Uh, I think you really got that figured out, and it scares me how much that is. Like my, I've had all of those. Um, my mom was not a drinker, so this sober thing wasn't an issue we're calling late but the monologue thing um was something that we could never really 
get around and it's just would leave me feeling completely drained and used um so i feel i feel you what if anything do you wish for uh, a long happy life full of love to be able to support myself financially doing something i love to be loved and respected to create a family that is a hundred times more happy and functional than what i grew up with to have a good impact on the world well you sound like a um a really um god i don't want to say together person because it makes me sound like i'm a hundred years old but um you sound very um, aware of people's uh, of the dysfunction around you, and like you're getting ready to um, start to deal with it and set some boundaries. So uh, high five to you. Have you shared these things with others? It's nice to clarify these wishes. I heard the saying in acting once that you can't understand understand a character until you understand what he or she wants. Same is true for all of us to understand ourselves. Thank you so much for that. And then these last two, one is a happy moment and the other, oh, they're both happy moments. This first one is from Tall Nicole. And she writes, I was visiting my dad in another city and I was nervous because I had a large, very public event to organize and present at. This was before I was diagnosed with anxiety, so I had no tools to manage my nervousness. I was too sick to eat anything besides a bit of fruit. My dad stayed at his house when I left to set up for the event. As 2,000 people started to filter in, I couldn't help but look for my dad, a grown woman searching in a sea of faces for her daddy. Deep down, I knew he wouldn't be there because of his own severe anxiety and his inability to remain calm in large crowds. The event turned out to be hugely successful, even more so than anyone could have anticipated. After the event, I went back to my dad's house to pack my bags and say goodbye. Dad told me that he had driven by the event and listened to the coverage on the radio. I sat down in the kitchen and excitedly told him every detail. As he listened, he washed and cut up a container of strawberries for me to snack on during my drive home. I thought this was odd. I don't think he had ever prepared food for me in my life. I was always the one taking care of him. But as he handed me the container, it hit me. My dad was proud of me. The strawberries were his way of saying, I'm proud of you, even if he couldn't say it in words. And just warms, warms my heart. And this last one is from Amanda. And um, she writes, Sitting on the couch and my husband leans over and kisses me and says, I love you so much and I actually accept it without wondering if he would rather be somewhere else because it's hard for me to believe that anyone would really want me. Days that I can accept that people actually like and see me for who I am. Those days are the best. Well, thank you for that, Amanda. And um, thank you guys for all your surveys and your support and all the stuff you do to keep this uh, this thing running. It means the world to me. And um, I hope if you're listening um, that you know that there's help if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and, uh, and ask for it. And um, just know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. 
They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.